Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, Senior Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. Coming up, is there a hidden danger to our health swirling in the city air? Air pollution costs London about 9,500 lives a year. We'll be finding out how artificial intelligence is finally leaving the lab. Believe it or not, one of the most fertile grounds is in car insurance. And we discover how new research into ancient oxygen has us questioning our understanding of evolution. If it wasn't oxygen that was holding them back, it opens the question of, well, what was? But first, air pollution warnings across the world are represented by a traffic light system. Green is good, red is bad. But due to the lack of a global standard of how an index of this type should be designed, one country's green is not necessarily the same as another's. And also, they only measure the immediate risk, not the long-term cumulative risk. Here at The Economist, we've been crunching the numbers, and our analysis suggests that air quality indices produced by governments make pollution seem less bad than it really is. With us to tell us more is one of our data journalists, Slavia Chankova. She joins me now. Hello, Slavea. Hello, Ken. Slavea, first of all, how did your team go about collecting this data? What were you looking for specifically? So the three pollutants we looked at were nitrogen dioxide, uh, which is a brownish gas, comes from car exhausts and other sources, fine particulates, which are tiny particles of soot, which are so small they can get deep into the lungs, and ground-level ozone, which is highly irritating for the respiratory system. The data came from Plume Labs, which is um, a company that has an air pollution app. Plume Labs gets it from official sources and creates an index based on it. Okay, so you say in your article that an index flashing green all the time lulls people into thinking that what they breathe daily is just fine in the long run, too. But what are the long-run dangers to our health? Air pollution has been linked with a variety of of health problems. The World Health Organization uh, three years ago added car exhaust to its list of carcinogens. And in London, a study by King's College published last year found that air pollution cuts life expectancy by at least nine months, and it could be as much as 16 months. So why are the indices so misleading? So one problem is that air quality indices measure the immediate or short-term risk. So the air has to be really, really bad for an index to, to say pollution is high or very high. But because short-term risks are different than long-term risks, people who don't read the fine print, they may think that air quality is generally very good and there is no risk to their health in the long term. So if we take uh, London, for example, the Air quality index here is on green or low most of the time, and that's 85, about 85% of days, I think, this year. However, our analysis shows that nitrogen dioxide exceeds the long-term 
limits of the World Health Organization 70-80% of the time. What are you suggesting that creators of official statistics do to overcome this problem? So one thing that could be done is just to make it clearer that this is a short-term index, perhaps even relabeling it as such. Another thing is perhaps the creation of a long-term index, just so people are aware of uh, the long-term risks, because right now many people are not. So air pollution costs London about 9,500 lives a year. This level of danger is just not in people's minds. Slavia, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. If you have something to add about this week's show, please find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can tweet us directly at Economist Radio, or you can email radio at economist.com. On last week's show, we discussed how 3,000 published studies using fMRI brain scans could be wrong due to a flaw in the way the data was collected. At William H. Carlton got in touch to say, This is great news. Science thrives on error correction. Sergio commented, The software and the studies based on it are made under enormous publish-or-perish pressure. They don't need to be right. They must generate sensational papers so that researchers get grants and professors get tenures. Don't like it? Ask the government to change the academic measurement metrics, evaluation and assessment policies away from measurable quantities, papers, citations, etc., to qualitative evaluation left to the academics. And at Shadow Shroud simply says, Seems a hard thing to know, that brain. Thank you for your comments, and please do get in touch with your thoughts about this week's show. Artificial intelligence is finally leaving the lab and going everywhere. The promise is that it can automate tasks that used to require human beings to do. This transforms everything, from how we perform scientific research to how we run businesses. With me to discuss these trends is Alexander Daliak. Alexander is the co-founder and CEO of Tractable, a company that aims to take some of the fundamental breakthroughs that have happened recently in AI and apply them to practical real-world problems. Why is AI so special? AI is special because it can automate the interpretation of data. Computers can ingest far greater amounts of information, can do it much more quickly, and can do it very consistently. This means, for example, that instead of having a human look at your radiology scan and only look at your heart for issues, the AI can look at your entire body. In terms of speed, it will allow us to intervene faster as soon as you detect an issue. For example, throughout heavy industry, whether it be oil and gas, construction or utilities, people make repair and maintenance operations and make mistakes. If you can visually tell that the mistake is about to happen, thanks to the AI, you can instantly intervene and prevent it. Now, there are some problems with AI, and that is because we need the data and the data labeled in a form that we can learn from it. And therein lies the problem. Absolutely. In 2012, we had a fundamental breakthrough in artificial intelligence where Enormous amounts of data were trained on very high computational power, and this enabled us to achieve incredible results in image classification. The problem with this approach was that it required tens of thousands of human hours to annotate and explain to the AI what was present on millions of example images. When you try and take this technology from the research lab to the real world, this becomes extremely prohibitive. You can't, as a business, be spending millions and waiting for years for your technology to be ready. What you need is a more efficient manufacturing process, and this is what we've been pioneering at Tractable. What have you done to help speed up the labeling of images? Well, you see, the way it's currently done is you just take millions of randomly sampled images and you get humans to label them. 
what we've done is we have created a feedback loop between the algorithm and the human, therefore creating what we call interactive machine learning technology. This enables the human not to be a blind labeler, but a teacher of the AI. So once we've now rapidly sped up the teaching and we have a lot more labeled data, you plan to actually apply this technology to certain areas that are seem ripe for automation. What are the first areas where you're going into? Well, believe it or not, one of the most fertile grounds for applying image classification is in car insurance. Every driver has to have insurance. Anything you can do to reduce that burden, to reduce the cost of car insurance, will have a major impact on society. Not only that, but image classification is at its core. Whenever you have a claim, the most important thing to do is to have an expert visually appraise the damage on your car to determine how much it will cost to repair it. Currently, the process is extremely inefficient and completely unreliable. Our technology is bringing in scale value add by getting the AI to verify millions of repair estimates to make sure that everyone is paying the right price for their repairs. Alex, right now, Tractable is looking at little pockets of commercial opportunities. But as we know from technology, the technology will go everywhere and lots of companies will adopt it and apply it across the board. What is your vision of how the world will look in, say, 20 years' time when this technology becomes mainstream? In 15 years, the current narrow applications of AI are going to steadily get broader and broader. Currently, AI can perform image classification better than humans. However, speech recognition is on the way to surpassing human accuracy. And so is natural language understanding. There's also a lot of work being done in robot control. Once these things come together, we will be able to build AI systems that can make sense of very wide and diverse sources of data, just like us as humans. We will therefore be able to make AI more and more generic and enable it to work on much more complex environments. That's really interesting. Thanks a lot, Alex. You're welcome. Finally, we're talking about ancient oxygen. The chemical element oxygen makes up a fifth of the atmosphere, but that has not always been the case. For the first two billion years of Earth's existence, there was no breathable oxygen at all. But recently, well, relatively recently, 575 billion years ago, large animals began to appear, so there must clearly have been some oxygen for them to survive, certainly enough. It had been thought that the oxygen levels in the atmosphere began to rise about 700 million years ago. But a new study has, for the first time, measured this directly and turned our assumptions on their head. To tell us more, our science correspondent, Matt Kaplan, joins me now. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Great. Matt, first of all, what did this study uncover? The researchers were asking the question, you know, just how much oxygen was in the environment a long time ago? And the critical issue at hand is that past researchers have always had to do this indirectly. They've looked at rocks, and they've tried to tease out, hmm, how much oxygen were these rocks exposed to? How much nitrogen were they exposed to in the air? And then they've done their calculations to say, oh, okay, we think the oxygen in the environment was 2% or 5% or whatever. These researchers said, is it possible for us to find little cavities of atmosphere to look at from long ago that we can study directly? And the answer to that question is yes. Okay, so where did they find these little pockets of oxygen? They started looking at halite crystals, which is just a geologically fancy way of saying salt. Uh, they knew that there were teams that were looking at salt crystals that had had little bits of ancient ocean water in them. These researchers behind the new work said, well, wait a minute. 
Is it possible that there's air trapped in there too? Okay, so how do you extract ancient oxygen from salt? Now, the procedure is a little bit tricky. You have to take the salt crystals, you have to soak them in isopropyl alcohol or other cleaning agents, uh, and then you have to leave the salt crystal after you've cleaned it off because you've got to get rid of any oxygen that may have leached into the outside of the crystal needs to be removed. Same thing with nitrogen and argon and all that other stuff. Then you have to put the crystal in a vacuum overnight. And after you've done that, you break open the crystal, opening up the, the cavity inside and releasing whatever gas is there into a mass spectrometer, which can scan it and tell you what elements are present. How big are these salt crystals? Are, we, are they working at a very tiny scale, or are these sort of large clumps? No, they're looking at, at very small pieces. You're talking about millimeters and centimeters. And you know what, what's so elegant about this is that these folks ask the question, okay, how much oxygen was in the atmosphere 800 million years ago? But they wanted to make sure that the whole thing worked. So they started with salt crystals that are only 10 years old. They went to a mine in Arizona where they knew that salt was relatively recently formed. And they looked at the oxygen content of the air in those capsules, and they compared it to the oxygen present in our atmosphere today. That all worked out just fine. After they'd done all that, they went way back in time to 800 million years and looked at those salt crystals. And what did they find then? They found in those 800 million-year-old salt crystals that you've got oxygen that is at a range of 10 to 13 percent. And that, you know, look, that may not sound like a lot to you and me, because frankly, Ken, you wouldn't do so well at 10 percent oxygen. But that's huge. That's five times more O2 than we previously thought was there. So that raises a lot of questions from a paleontological point of view anyway. So this is interesting. How does that affect our understanding of evolution? So we've got a lot of creatures, which we call big, but that's actually a misnomer because they're not big at all. But they don't appear until you've got a lot of oxygen in the environment. And we've always assumed that, okay, animals don't start appearing in great numbers because oxygen wasn't present yet. Well, now these folks are saying, whoa, hang on, oxygen was present at levels of 10% all the way back at 800 million years of age. So if it wasn't oxygen that was holding them back, it opens the question of, well, what was? And we don't, we don't know the answer to that yet. Thanks a lot, Matt. Sure thing, Ken. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For further coverage of all things science and technology, please visit Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 